Hey there. Hello. So, you know how Kyle and I have very different music tastes? Yeah, I I've ha- I have some experience with this. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have such different music tastes, like, we have legitimately had, like, a big fight over it at one point. Like, it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> how do you even fight over musical tastes if it's, like, just you like what you like, dude? No, it was... I'm very snooty, <laughs> is, is the problem. Oh, okay. So, so I'm judgy you were about some of the music he likes. Yeah, which is understandable. I shouldn't be so judgy. Yeah. But he was being judgy about me being judgy, so that doesn't excuse it. But <laughs> No. that <laughs> It really doesn't. But I bring this up because something interesting happened the other day. All right. Kyle was like, what do you think is the greatest album of all time? And I was like, I don't know. What do you think? And he said rumors by Fleetwood Mac and I was like I agree whoa so we can't agree what to listen together Mm -hmm. what to listen to together on a daily basis but we can agree on the singular best album of all time why don't you only listen to that album together then we do listen to it a lot the best (laughs) album of all time and why not I mean it's hard to top it (laughs) it's true that's great across your great divides you at least have this one thing in common (laughs) all right do you want to dive into it Yeah, what are you teaching me today? Teach me something. All right. Today we're going to learn about the Black Panther Party. Ooh, okay. I know basically nothing. So I am a sponge waiting for my water. Well, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of that. A little bit of a a teaching strategy here called KWL chart for you teacher heads out there. (laughs) What? All right. K is, stands for like, what do you already know? So what do we know? Okay. All right. W is your, what do we want to know? And then when we're done with the lesson, L is, what did we learn? Oh, wow. That's Mm. some dork shit. Some pedagogy. Yeah. Okay. So what do you know? What do you already know about the Black Panther Party? Oh, gosh. Well, let me preface this with saying we grew up in rural East Texas. And as such, we were brought up with some, well, we were in a racist environment. (laughs) There's, There's not a good way to put that. It's Yeah, it's rural East Texas. So it's not the most enlightened corner of our country. Definitely not. I definitely grew up with the idea that like other people would imply or say that the Black Panthers were like violent and like a dangerous group of some sort. Like that's what the information or like the cultural knowledge I had of them. Okay, that makes sense. And more specifically, maybe like here was Martin Luther King, good guy, does things peacefully. But on the other hand, right here were... Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. here was Black Panther Party, the people who wanted to be violent and were bad, right? Yes, definitely there was that dichotomy. Okay. Anything else? More recently, I learned about stuff like their school breakfast program or lunch program, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was definitely... I mean, eye-opening, but like I had already knew by that time, like they couldn't have been like as bad as I had been brought to believe. Right. But that was definitely, I was like, oh, they did like some really cool community shit. And yeah, so... That's all I got, really. <laughs> awesome. All right. I know there's a movie coming out soon about one of them, and and that's that's about it. Oh, yeah. That's uh, the one about Fred Hampton, right? Yeah. Judas and the Black Messiah, I believe, is what it's called. Ooh, that's a metal-ass name. It's got a... Oh, yeah. That is, that is a cool name. <laughs> Directed and produced by Shaka King. It's coming out in 2021. It's got Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield in the main roles of Fred Hampton and um, uh, William O'Neill. Okay. Sounds like our future movie night awaits us. Yeah, we'll need to watch that. 
All right, let's get into then what are our learning targets? What do you want to learn here? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to learn I'm like picturing like a like a column chart on notebook paper right now. <laughs> yeah, usually we do these on anchor charts. It's just a big ass like paper, you know. You can peel it off and stick it to the oh, wall. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know they had a name. Okay. Oh, they're just big ass post-its. Another one for the teacher heads out there. <laughs> okay, so I want to learn I guess like who were the main players and like, you know, how they founded it and stuff. And like what they actually, like what their goals were mm-hmm. and what they did. And I do want to know how they like interplayed with like the civil rights movement as a whole. Like what was their role? Just because like, I think we were taught that dichotomy mm-hmm. of like good and bad, which is, you know, obviously very simplified and not true. Yeah. And I, I want to know more about why that is that we were taught that they were bad. Sounds good. Let's see if we can do some of this. So Black Panther Party, when we're talking about these guys, they were active from 1966 to 1982. Okay. They were centered in Oakland, California. Initially, they're eventually a national and even, they even have some international chapters by the 1970s. Okay, cool. They're a black power political organization demanding self-determination for black people in the United States. They fought against poverty capitalism, racism, militarism, imperialism, and a rigged criminal justice system. I mean, those are all my least favorite things. Those are all things I would like to fight against. So, And it kind of makes sense when you see what they're fighting against, why you might be taught in <laughs> in uh, Department of Education funded schools, why they are, you know, terrible. Yeah, they're only okay with like one of those things, I feel like. They're like, yeah, you can't be explicitly racist, but everything else, please continue doing <laughs> The Panthers, uh, they sought to actively protect themselves and their communities and directly provide to those communities the things that people needed to survive. Okay, so big into mutual aid. Yes, that's a huge part of it. When you're talking about the free breakfast programs mm-hmm. and things, that, that was part of that overall program. Cool. We'll, and we'll get into that here in a bit. One point that I do want to make to listeners is that we are talking about the Black Panther Party not an organization called the New Black Panther Party. Okay. Which is something different. And it's kind of bad. It's bad. Oh. It's considered a hate group by the SPLC. Shit. Um, okay. Ordinarily, I definitely check when people say that someone makes anti-Semitic statements. I make sure that they're not just critis- criticizing Israel foreign policy. <laughs> that happens a lot. But these guys. They did. They were big into. They are big. I guess they're still around. They're, they're big into anti-Semitism. They're, they're Ooh, not good. Okay. We're no, talking about the original Black Panther Party, the actual one. Okay. All right. So you wanted to know kind of about the civil rights interplay. Mm-hmm. And we got to put these guys into perspective because we said they were founded in 1966. So that comes after a lot of the kind of early civil rights battles. Yeah. I actually like wasn't sure if Malcolm X was a Black Panther. I was like, I feel like he was friends. I don't know. <laughs> that makes sense. So he was not. He He was assassinated before. Uh, the Black oh, Panther Party comes okay. into existence. Okay, but he was definitely on that like side of the dichotomy of like this one, this guy was mean about it. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's presented as extreme, also in that vein. Yeah. So by the mid 1960s, the civil rights movement had really won a lot of important legal victories. Right. Mm-hmm. You have the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You had the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So legally speaking, black people in America had won key rights and really yeah. you know minorities of any of any racial group had won 
significant legal protections based on that. Yes, in theory. In theory. And so <laughs> by the point, by the time you get to the mid-60s and moving on past that, you're starting to see the younger generation of black people, especially in northern cities and, and out west, western cities and stuff, L.A., uh, Chicago, places like this. They're kind of wondering... How could they move past just formal legal protections and move into actual economic and political equality? Hell yeah. I'm always asking that question, too. We talked about that in our Queer Theory episode. Yeah. I mean, because it's, you know, great. It is important, like we were saying, to get legal protections like that and to have kind of a legislated equality of so of sorts. Anti-discrimination. Yes. We want yes. that. <laughs> But also, how can we advance our communities? How can we... Like materially. Yeah. How can we improve that? And that's kind of the scene that we're going to drop a few players into. Who's first on the cast list? Key people. We got two people here. The founders of the Black Panther Party. We got Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. Okay. They found the, the Black Panther Party. They found the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. That's its original name. Okay. Uh, in October of 1966. Huey P. Newton was born in Monroe, Louisiana, 1942. Probably not a great place to be at that time. <laughs> no, it was something like the fifth fifth highest lynchings mm. in that county, like if yep. you compare the other counties. Jesus. He was named after Huey Long, who we've mentioned in the show before. Oh, uh, the, yeah. The governor okay. guy there in, in Louisiana. Interesting. Yeah, that's, I just thought that was neat. <laughs> uh, he grew up poor in Oakland. His, his family moved out to Oakland pretty Soon thereafter, and he, he grew up there, graduated high school without being able to read. Whoa. So that's how bad the school systems were failing them there. Yeah. He taught himself to read, kind of opens his eyes to the world. He goes to Merritt College there in Oakland, kind of a community college there. Picks up the writings of our good friends, Marx and Lenin, oh, yeah. France Fanon, Malcolm X. Who's that third guy? Che Guevara. Uh, France Fanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, like an anti colonialist okay thinker he was a philosopher kind of like a pan-africanist thinker as well so kind of okay. a radical thinker in that in that regard definitely against imperialism against colonialism so friend of the show good let's see who else on the reading list Mao Zedong Che Guevara Huey Newton's getting he's in Merrick College he's, he's getting he's woke getting radicalized yeah <laughs> and that's where he meets Bobby Seale okay Here's our other guy, Bobby Seale, born in Liberty, Texas, 1936, lives in poverty, moves around a lot, moves to Oakland when he's eight. He dropped out of high school to join the Air Force. He gets discharged for bad conduct for fighting with a CO. Okay. Not a good idea, I guess. He ends up working as a sheet metal mechanic while in night school, and then he ends up going to Merritt College, where he meets Huey Newton. These guys, they meet up in a club there called the Afro-American Association. They get to talking. They realize that they share some common admiration for certain people. Malcolm X, for example, he had been assassinated the year before. They both thought he was onto the right stuff. Mm -hmm. They both had a desire to make some change happen in their community, to make things better for people. They're kind of having this conversation and they decide, why don't we do something about this? Why don't we start an organization, start a party? Sounds great. So that's what they do. They form <laughs> the awesome. Black Panther Party for Self-Defense with Bobby Seale as the chairman and with Huey Newton as Minister of Defense. Minister of Defense. Wow. Okay. 
They're going yeah. for it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, th- so they start the party there. That's October 1966. Two people. They come up with uh, they come up with something called the ten point program. This is like the party platform, and it's pretty cool. Okay, what are these points? It lays out the demands of the party simply and clearly. So I won't read the whole thing. We'll, we can. It'll be in the notes if you do the Patreon route and you want to check Hell it out. Yeah. I've got a lot of links in our notes this time. We're gonna hold there's them just hostage. So much stuff. <laughs> Pay us. I will summarize for you because it lays out the demands of the party simply and clearly. Okay. Self determination. Full employment, reparations, housing, education, exemption from the draft, ending police brutality, mass prison releases, ending all white juries, and it finishes up with the summation, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. Man, I am, I am bobbing my head like that is a fresh <laughs> new beat. I love it. That is great stuff. And it's simple. Like, if you read the program, it's not jargoned up in anything like that. Oh, thank God. The first point is we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. That is so good. That's it. There's no, there's nothing in there about the dialectical materialism or anything like that. Or the, <laughs> Yeah, it's just easy. It's just like, yeah, I do want that. Thank you. Yeah, there's like 0% Marxism in here, really. Theory in here. Mm-hmm. Except for it is. It's all grounded in that. It's just not. I love that. It's just not, you know, presented to people that way. Besides, you know, mention of like capitalist exploitation, which is also itself presented in a way that's understandable. So this is like what they come out the gate with, the 10-point program. Cool. I mean, I give it a 10 out of 10. (laughs) They uh, adopt the logo of the Black Panther. Hell yeah. It's a cool logo. Yeah. It's it's all like slinked up there, but looking like mad. It's cool. Yeah. They kind of ripped it off a little bit. (laughs) Okay. A guy named Stokely Carmichael, who was the leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC is what they're often called. They were a civil rights organization. He had started a group down in the South that was doing kind of like more civil rights activism, I think, in Alabama, called the mm. Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And their lo- they had been using the Black <laughs> Panther as a logo there. Um, and they were like, let's, let's use that. That's, that yeah. looks cool. <laughs> Did they redraw it at least or they just like crib it? <laughs> I think so because I, I don't know what the original one looked like really. Okay. That's where they got the inspiration from. By the way, Tony Soprano has a Black Panther tattoo, and it distracts me every single time. And he's, he's in his little tank top. <laughs> I've never noticed that. So on my <laughs> okay. inevitable rewatch, I rewatch it every couple years. I'll check and see. We'll, we'll, I can't remember if it's a tiger or a panther now. We need to. We need to find out for <laughs> show science. Important. Okay, hold on, Tony Soprano. Tony tattoo. Oh, yeah, he has a finger tattoo also, which is always very distracting. Like, no, I don't want a tattoo of Tony Soprano. <laughs> Who would do that? Who is oh, psychotic that's great. enough? Okay, it is. Oh, it is a tiger. I'm very sorry. That's a tiger. Well, but no, Polly has a Black Panther though. Really? Yeah, Polly, and Polly's like racist, but it's like one of those like Black Panthers are also like pretty common like Japanese tattoos, you know. Japanese slash like new American style. Oh yeah, he does have one. There we go. That was that was a good diversion. For the small little slice of our Venn diagram of listeners <laughs> who watch The Sopranos, there we go. 
There you go. They come up with their uniform. Their uniform is blue shirts, black pants, a black leather jackets, black berets. I mean, it's a good look. Pretty much, yeah. Look as cool as you can. Yeah, they did a good job. <laughs> um, and so they go out and they start. Let's 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 get some members. Their first recruit is a guy named Bobby Hutton. Okay. Uh, a youth named Bobby Hutton. He was 16 years old when he's recruited. Oh wow. He was recruited. He was their first treasurer. At <laughs> 16. They're just yeah. I mean, he was the third guy to be there. So like, <laughs> I guess that's what happens. What's the next job? Well, we have treasurer. <laughs> Pretty soon thereafter, they recruit Eldridge Cleaver, who also will come into play. He's from Arkansas. He grew up in the Watts neighborhood, the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. Oh, okay. He gets involved into kind of petty crime in his youth and also more serious crime. He is uh, convicted of sexual assault and sent to prison. Okay. In prison, he reads Marx and Lenin and Malcolm X. He kind of becomes radicalized there. I'm kind of shocked they had those books in prison. I mean, I guess they had normal <laughs> libraries. I know that nowadays you can like donate books and stuff to prison That's organizations true. to like get them to prisoners there. We should just all start doing to sending all the marks we can over to prisons. Yeah, I think they're one of the reasons that they, you know, aren't so restrictive on that stuff is because of the the they watch TV in their crowd. You ever heard these guys? No. They'll like complain and they'll be like, you know, they have TVs and all oh, these channels okay. in prison, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who were just, you know, they'd like to bring back the torture chamber, basically. <laughs> yes. So you give them a book, and well... No one likes know, to read. At least they're doing something productive, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so he gets radicalized and repudiates his former life. He had kind of bigoted racial views there mm. as well. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to, you know, be like Malcolm X and be an anti-racist. Cool. He joined the Panthers when he's released from prison. He's paroled in 1966. He becomes the Minister of Information. Okay. So we're filling out the positions here. <laughs> Their org chart's looking good. And Elders Cleaver, he's a weird guy. Like I said, you know, before he had done some bad shit in his life before. Mm-hmm. Later on in life, he also writes some homophobic stuff in a mm. famous book of his called Soul on Ice. His life after the Panthers is crazier. Gets into everything from fashion design to born-again Christianity. What? At one point, it creates his own religion that he calls Christlam, like a blend of Christianity and Islam. What the heck, man? When he's bored with that, he joins the LDS church. He eventually ends up life as a conservative Republican. So like this guy, all over the place. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he's interesting. Yeah, he had quite a life. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about them. They've, they've just been founded. They have a few members. They start expanding. And to fund that expansion, they start selling copies of a book popularly known as the Little Red Book, also officially titled Quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong. Ooh, okay. So a different Little Red Book. <laughs> this is uh, just officially published by the Chinese Communist Party and put out there and everything they would buy them in bulk and sell them to leftists and liberals on the campus of uc berkeley wow okay to raise money that could not have bought them many friends <laughs> well uh it's interesting because i was looking into this it's not just a fundraising source the party was actually inspired by and kind of aimed to put into practice mao zedong thought 
Okay. Which is not officially like Maoism, Maoism until mm-hmm. 1982 later on. I think we mentioned that in our ideologies episode. Yeah. One thing I do at some point want to revisit is Maoism as an ideology. Yeah, I'm a little fuzzy on it. I mean, I know about the Cultural Revolution, but I don't remember much else about it, like why it's that different. I don't know. I think we didn't really do it justice last time. We kind of like, it was there, it was... mm. We had a lot to cover. (laughs) Yeah, I just think it could be explored more. And it does have more interesting points and good things to raise than we really gave it credit for at the time. Okay. Like, for example, the Panthers adopted the tactic of the mass line. Yeah, I remember this one. The mass line, uh, if you'll recall, simplified in the slogan, from the masses to the masses, Mm -hmm. which the party would be well-versed in revolutionary theory and what it, you know, what it thought it should do programmatically and stuff, right? Yes. The whole goal was to keep from separating the party from the people and making it this weird other thing. You wanted to stay in contact with the people. Okay, cool. So you'd maintain a close relationship with the masses, you know, regular non-party people in the community, and you'd consult them and be like, what do you need? What's wrong in your life? What can we do? Like, what problems do you face? That sort of thing. I like that. Yeah. And then so then after that, you you interpret that, you refine it, you'd be like, okay, well, how does this fit into Marxism? What do we do? You know, how does this fit into revolutionary communism? And then bring that action back to the people and say, you guys said you wanted blah. Well, we're here to bring you blah. Okay. There you go. I like that because I feel like we've talked about before how in like the Bolshevik party, it was very close to the vest, very secretive because that's how Mm -hmm. they were formed. And I think that's interesting. The Black Panthers went the other way because you can tell like they're so focused on mutual aid. It's probably came from that. They're like, we're, we're just trying to help people. Yes. And so their program very, is very much tied in with this tactic of the mass line. They are always out there trying to do directly whatever it is that people need. Cool. And also selling the book was a great source of income. They were jacking <laughs> it up three times the price, which allowed them to raise enough money to, you know, spread the membership and to buy some guns. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. This is another thing I knew about Black Panthers. They, they like guns. They liked guns. Uh, the Panthers <laughs> needed guns for self and community defense. Okay. They drew some inspiration from this that was interesting. I've heard of this guy before, but I had to do some research on him because it's kind of a character. And we can add him into, you know, a later episode, a segment or entire episode on his own. His name is Robert F. Williams. And he was the head of the Monroe, North Carolina chapter of the NAACP in like the 50s all the way through 1961. He's known for promoting armed self-defense. Okay. Because they had, like, the Klan was really powerful where he was from. Yeah, and you couldn't, like, count on the fucking cops to help because they were often part of the Klan. (laughs) Yeah, so he promotes armed self-defense. He calls up the National Rifle Association and sets up a local branch, you know, a a (gasps) charter of that. I love that. In there, but it's, like, black people from his community (laughs) that are in it, and they're, you know training themselves to defend themselves, defend their community from attacks from the Klan. He writes a book called Negroes with Guns that details his experiences there and everything and all what he went through. This is supposed to be the book that had like one of the biggest impacts on Huey Newton. Interesting. That's where they're kind of drawing that inspiration from. Newton had studied gun laws in California. He knew about that the state had open carry laws. Oh, shit. So you could carry a loaded rifle or a shotgun as long as it was out in the open, you know? Yeah. 
and not pointed at anyone. Wow. As long as you did that, that was legal. That's amazing. California Wild West. I mean, it, you know, kind of makes sense. So the party started to go out and do that. This is similar to something that had happened before called community alert patrols. Okay. Which happened after the, uh, the Watts Rebellion of 1965. Okay, what's that? A lot of times these will be called the Watts Riots. This is referring to the same thing, but it's unrest that happens in Los Angeles from August 11th to 16th of 1965, uh, where a black man was pulled over for reckless driving. An argument breaks out with the police there. The police end up hurting a pregnant woman Oof. in the conflict and bystanders and stuff. Get it's It devolves and... The community had been, of course, being oppressed. Yeah, yeah. So this just kind of boiled over into days of of uprising. Yeah, I mean, an unfortunately classic story. Yes, 34 people died, 1,000 people were injured, 3,000 arrests. Afterward, the local community there set up community alert patrols where they would go and watch the cops to make sure that they weren't, you know, brutalizing people. Yeah, and they would set like they had mutual networks of lawyers and stuff, legal aid, legal counsel that could help people in those situations. So it's similar to that what the Black Panthers were doing. Their innovation was to combine that with Robert F. Williams's idea of arming yourself, mm-hmm. and now you have armed cop watching patrols. Wow! They made sure that the police weren't pulling any brutality on their watch. Damn! I bet the cops really hated that. <laughs> they did. Yeah, they hated it a ton. Hated it so much that they got a guy named Don Mulford to propose a law called the Mulford Act in the California State Assembly. It was a gun control bill. Oh, wow. Yeah. In May 1967, they were proposing this bill to make publicly carrying loaded firearms illegal. Wow. I think I've told you about this before, but Bojack mm-hmm. Horseman has an episode. <laughs> Where women start carrying guns, like they get really into guns, and then they pass like comprehensive gun control <laughs> bills because they're like, we can't have this. <laughs> yeah. This was deliberately aimed at ending mm-hmm. the cop watching patrols. May 2nd, 1967, they meet to discuss that law. Uh, and this is when the Panthers put into action a little plan. They get 30 of their members, led by Bobby Seal, they go to the state house. And they go inside the building armed oh my to protest the bill. They get arrested. They get charged with disrupting the legislative session. Brings a whole lot of publicity to the Panthers. Yeah. Side note here. This bill was an incredible example of overwhelming bipartisanship. <laughs> of course it was. It was also supported by the NRA. Okay. <laughs> Those stalwart champions of gun rights, except for when they're not. <laughs> that sucks. It was signed into law by Governor Ronald freaking Reagan. Uh, of course it was. <laughs> he famously said of the law that he saw no reason why on the street today a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> said the guns were a ridiculous way to solve problems that have to be solved by Solved among people of goodwill. I assume he means white people. Yeah, right? <laughs> Jeez. It's, just, it's a far cry from the, you know, only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Yeah, what the fuck? It's so fucked up. <laughs> but hey, man, now the wrong people were carrying them. and So <laughs> So that's not okay. 
But in the story of our party here, they, it, this brought them immense publicity. Mm-hmm. People, you know, recruits start rolling in. It's at this time that Huey Newton got into some legal trouble. Okay. Because on October 28th of that year, 1967, he's uh, pulled over by the cops. The cops call for backup. There's a sh- an exchange of shots. <gasps> Disagreement on who ends up shooting and whatever. Newton ends up shot. One of the cops ends up shot. Uh, one of the cops ends up shot four times and dies. Ooh, okay. Maybe he might have killed the cop. I'm not really sure. There's disagreement. Some people say he did, didn't, whatever. Okay. He gets convicted of voluntary manslaughter. He gets sent to prison. They appeal the verdict. Um, it takes forever. So meanwhile, the Panthers are launched this free Huey campaign. Okay. To try to get raise awareness of his cause. It raises their profile. Eventually, the charges do get overturned. But it's like in 1970. It's like Jeez. a ways down the road. Again, this kind of fits in with their, with them growing as an mm-hmm. organization. So they get more recruits. Another big incident in their history is when Bobby Hutton, the treasurer, is killed. Oh, no. He was really young. He was. He was 16, I think, when they recruited him in 1966. So he would have been 18 at this point. Oh. On April 6th, 1968, he's traveling with Eldridge Cleaver and some of the other Panthers. This is two days after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Oh, my gosh. And so riots have broken out. Uprisings have broken out all over the place out of anger, Mm -hmm. out of this assassination of of such a beloved figure. The group goes to confront some Oakland police. Cleaver, this is later in life, so it's once he's like, when one of his weird stages. (laughs) Okay. Claims that, you know, kind of admits to picking a fight here or ambushing the cops here but this is later in life so i don't know if that was when he was a conservative republican or not i have no idea they end up in an altercation and they the panthers end up fleeing to hutton's apartment building Mm -hmm. it leads to a 90 minute shootout with the police oh my gosh two officers end up wounded cleaver ends up wounded the police tear gas the building Oh, my God. Hutton ends up stripping down to his underwear to show that he's unarmed when he comes out with his hands up and surrender. Oh. Even though he comes out like that, the police gunned him down. Oh, my God. Shooting him more than 12 times. 12? More than 12 times. Oh, my God. The police, of course, lied about it all, claiming he attempted to run away and ignored orders to stop. Of course. Cleaver ends up charged with attempted murder for the incident. Later that year, he ends up jumping bail and fleeing to Cuba. Stays there with Castro for a while until Castro starts to suspect that he's like set up for the CIA or something. Because the CIA was always trying to set up Castro. So <laughs> so he, he leaves. He goes to Algeria instead. Okay. Weirdly enough, this same year, 1968, that uh, Cleaver is nominated as the presidential candidate for the Peace and Freedom Party. What? Yeah. Kind of a radical choice for them, but they're, you know, they're basically socialists, I guess. Okay. But I think he was like also ineligible. I don't know. <laughs> well, for being a convicted felon for one, but also yeah. for, I don't think he was going to be old enough or something like that. <laughs> okay. Anyway, big event there because now you have multiple people either in jail or in exile or killed. Yeah, yeah. This is the sad part of the movie. To counterpose that, the party was still expanding. The party had expanded to major cities all across the country, uh, anywhere from Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Dallas, Detroit, Los Angeles, New Orleans, all all over the place, right? Yeah. Peak membership ends up around 5,000 direct members. 
the newspaper called the Black Panther uh, had a circulation of around 250,000. Yeah, so they were spreading the the ideas, right? Spreading mm-hmm. the membership. And their ideas also were kind of changing. Okay. And I was trying to figure out how this had come to pass because like you said, we get this idea that maybe these guys were what what people would call like reverse racists or something, right? It's like, oh, they yeah. hated white people. <laughs> yes, yes. They wanted to kill all the white people or something, right? Yeah. And so people get this idea uh, of the Panthers as this like anti-white organization from their origins as black nationalists, as kind mm-hmm. of separatists. That doesn't mean that they want to, you know, they're, that they want to be violent toward white people or anything. That's an exaggeration of uh, kind of a distortion of that. Mm-hmm. It just means that they were looking at the problems that their community faced. And they said, well, to solve the problems that are afflicting black people, we need to form a nation of our own people. That's how mm-hmm. people have solved problems in the past. The problem was that they you know, couldn't because they were a minority in this area and they weren't the dominant force, right? Yeah. But it's like, if you become the dominant force, then you don't have the same problem. So it's like, what do you do? Like you're kind of <laughs> trapped. That, that's not an effective way to solve the problem is what they, they found. So they evolved into revolutionary nationalists. Okay. And so they're basically here, the idea is, well, it can't just be just us here. We need to join with black people throughout the country, right? We've got all these different kind of colonies all over the place, you know, oppressed by the same oppressor. We should kind of unite throughout. The, that's mm-hmm. when they're spreading, right? They move on past that to the idea that it's not just going to be enough to just look out for ourselves, we need solidarity with all these other different groups. Yeah, okay. There are racial groups that we'll talk about in a bit that are forming their own self-defense groups, their own direct action mutual aid groups. And they're like, we need to make alliances with these guys. They become now revolutionary internationalists because not just about mm-hmm. us. Now we are teaming up with all these other groups too. All of us working toward our own self-determination, right? Okay, that sounds good. This I got from a talk that Huey Newton gave, kind of explaining the evolution of the party. So so from here, Newton argued that basically, and this is con- going to be maybe confusing, so I'll try to make it understandable. <laughs> he argues that nations no longer effectively exist. Okay. All right, now, crazy, but let's <laughs> see how. Uh, this is because he says that the U.S. empire was hegemonic at this point, has Mm. domination over everything. I mean, yeah. And he says, look, even like literal actual colonies of places or countries that are now independent nominally Mm -hmm. are still actually colonies and there's no way for them to escape. For sure. Like economically speaking, like Mm -hmm. they're completely oppressed by us. And that was what his, his insight was, was he saying economically... There is no way that you can not be a colony of the U.S. empire. So there are no nation. There's just the empire and people who are oppressed by it. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. So he says, okay, we got to move on past the concept of nations. Then we shouldn't be fighting for a nation because that nation will just be a colony of the U.S. empire. He says there's really just these communities in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, like we said, people who are oppressed by the empire who want to determine their own destinies. So he says this situation is what he calls intercommunalism. Okay. And so he says right now, 
the world is in reactionary intercommunalism. That's the bad situation where you have the U.S. on top exploiting everybody, exploiting all the communities, keeping it for themselves, right? But he says, the world, we're sufficiently advanced, or at least soon will be. We should be basically kind of how Marx says, we should seize the means of production to make it good for everybody, right? Yeah. Revolutionary intercommunalism would be getting all the people, all the oppressed people all over the world to team up together and take power for themselves. Okay. I think that makes sense. Sounds hard, but cool. (laughs) Yeah, no, it does sound hard, but I think that's, it's important kind of to lay out that distinction that the Panthers did start out in this kind of more small, narrowly tailored, uh, we are fighting specifically for and only for our rights Mm -hmm. and kind of expanded to, seeing the bigger picture and uniting with other groups. Yeah. Not to, not to put that aside, but to do that too. Yeah. And I remember reading about like some of the gay liberation groups and stuff that mm-hmm. eventually they came to support the gay rights movement. And like, that was a really big deal. Cause before, like it wasn't, that wasn't really a thing. <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely, it seems like they're all about that intersectionality, which, you know, I love. Yes. And that was, I mean, that was a process. And we'll get into their party issues with sexism and gender mm-hmm. and everything a bit later. But that's that's something that is also kind of going on that they're improving on as they go. Mm-hmm. They're also, during this time, engaging in just straight up crime. <laughs> okay. Some extortion, some burglaries, some robberies. All right. To fund party activities. Uh, it reminded me of like Stalin's outlaw group. Oh, Yeah with the Bolsheviks and stuff. And Lenin's all like, please stop doing this. Don't give me this money. <laughs> and he's just like, it fell off a truck, you know, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. I guess it's a source of funding for them. And it's in this year in 1968 that we get the entry of our dear friends of the show, the FBI. Oh, good. The FBI. Big fuck you. If you're listening <laughs> for real, Eat my butt, FBI. They had created back in the day, in 1956, they created this organization or this operation, I guess, within their group called the Counterintelligence Program. Okay. And it was known by the acronym, or I don't know what this is, initial something, COINTELPRO. Okay, yeah. Kind of an acronym, kind of not. You take like parts of it. Yeah, I don't know. That. (laughs) It sounds like an app. (laughs) This was designed, well, this was okay, explicitly to target and to fuck up the Communist Party USA. Yeah, okay. Because I remember them from the show The Americans. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you're right. To increase factionalism, to cause disruption, to win defections within the Communist Party USA. Cool. That's what it was designed to do, but it was almost immediately expanded to include black civil rights leaders. Mm. Because, uh, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's sorry ass was saying that the movement was infiltrated with communists. Okay. So, COINTELPRO targets like Martin Luther King. Yep. The FBI famously wrote him, and this wasn't revealed till like so much later, that they had written this, put together this package of blackmail encouraging him to kill himself. Jesus. That was our own government. Ugh. Malcolm X, also a target of COINTELPRO who tried to sow division amongst the 
ranks between Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam and different black nationalist groups, which ultimately leads to Malcolm X's assassination. Shit. Okay. So they caused uh, that? By these disgruntled groups. Yes. I mean, they, oh they stirred God. that up. They point people in. They, they just push. Ugh. Trash. Wiretap surveillance, undercover informants, false communications, all this used to undermine civil rights groups and civil rights leaders. This, in July 1967, gets turned sort of in the direction of the Panthers when the FBI directs COINTELPRO to neutralize black nationalist hate groups. Okay. As well as civil rights groups, they end up setting up a program called the Ghetto Informant Program. Okay. Where they try to infiltrate poor black communities to monitor dissident groups. How do they even do it? I mean, are there even any black people in the FBI at that point? Uh, no, but they, they like they pay in. They pay off people. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. By the end of this program or throughout it, I'm not sure how they tally it up, but they end up with at least 67 informants Jeez. in the Black Panther Party. It's in September of 1968 that Hoover turns his gaze specifically to the Panthers, describing them as, quote, the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. What the fuck? He really hated them. By the following year... The Panthers had been singled out in 233 out of 295 authorized actions under what they were calling COINTELPRO dash, like the operation name, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Was COINTELPRO dash black hate. If you find yourself running an operation that has that name, maybe you went wrong somewhere. Yes. Uh, it's time to, <laughs> time to re-evaluate. surrender and yeah. <laughs> so they are just gunning for the Panthers. And this takes a little while to kind of bear fruit, but it does bear some bloody fruit. Okay. So was there a problem with them? I mean, I'm assuming these people were probably racist, but they were also scared because they had guns and stuff, I'm assuming, or like... Um, So like J. Edgar Hoover, of course, personally racist. The system he's working for is a racist system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They probably didn't like the communism part. Yeah. They, it's, you know, it's a Marxist. It's a revolutionary group. Yeah. So that that was scary to them. <laughs> okay. It was challenging the authority of the cops. Yeah. And we'll see from some of their mutual aid programs and like the, the food programs you were talking about, that was seen as challenging like the legitimacy of the government, mm. you know, because it's supposed to be doing that. But it's not. It's failing its job. Yeah, but they yeah. were showing that. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were pissed about that too. Okay. They just thought this was like the, the seeds that would lead to a wider like revolution that Man, would them. threaten them. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. So COINTELPRO, they start targeting the Panthers with undercover operatives. They start spreading false information, dissent. They start paying informants to pass back information to the FBI. They, one of the big tricks that we'll see them use is using anonymous letters. And like I said, as time goes on, this is going to get bad, but this is when it starts. 1968. Okay. They're like, we got to do something about these guys. And they, they start doing that. Okay. Uh, 1968 is also the year that Fred Hampton joins the party. Fred Hampton may be the coolest Panther. Not sure. <laughs> Sounds but great. he's really cool. He was born in August 30th, 1948 in the suburbs of Chicago. Graduated from Proviso East High School. Honor student in 1966. Goes to a local junior college there. Majors in pre-law. And becomes a successful youth organizer for the local NAACP branch. Cool. He's like Star Child, Golden Child. Mm -hmm. And just one year out of high school in 1967, the FBI opens up a file on him. What could he possibly be doing at that age? Suspicious of his leadership abilities, even as a young person. I mean, he's just leading the local NAACP branch. This guy, I mean, think about it. 
think we we got to spend a little bit here feeling sorry for ourselves, man. I'm in my thirties now. <laughs> this guy, one year out of high school, is already on the FBI list. What is this? What have, what did I do? I know it took us a long time. Oh, we're woefully behind the ball here. We just got to step it up. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. One year out of high school, he's on the FBI's watch list. He, they open up a file on him. They tap his mother's phone in February of 1968. And by May, they've put him on the Agitator Index, which is their list of people they're watching, I guess, wow. as a, quote, key militant leader. This is, just, again, a, a child. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, at this okay, at this point, he's 19. But, Still yeah, a he's baby, a teenager. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> It's not, to, it's, not, it's not even till November of that year that he joins the Black Panther Party's Illinois chapter. That okay. was before wow. he joined the party. He was already key militant leader. <laughs> Jeez. So, super cool. <laughs> and once he joins, he's a, a whirlwind of a force there in the party. He organizes weekly rallies. He supports local strikes. He leads community cop watches. He teaches political classes. Cool. He's all over the place. Oh, that's what we could do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess. in our in our future revolutionary group, we can just be the teachers. Yeah, well, that's that's the only thing we'll do. Yeah, we're never going to get on the watch list if that's all we're doing. <laughs> They'll still call us militant. His biggest achievement, we'll get to it later, but he makes an impact on day one, including setting up the Black Panther Party's free breakfast for school children program in that area. Okay, that's the thing I've heard about. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're going to get into next because it's cool. This starts in 1969 in January. It's called the Serve the People program, or it's also called their Survival Programs. Okay. And this kind of comes from that Maoist influence we were talking about, that adoption of the mass line, mm-hmm. focusing on what do the people need. Yeah, and they need breakfast. Yeah. They start setting up these survival programs to directly provide needed services to the people in their neighborhoods. The Free Breakfast for School Children program They start that in January 1969 out of St. Augustine's Church in Oakland. By the end of the year, they were so popular that they set up similar programs across the U.S. They're feeding, by the peak of it, over 10,000 kids a day before school. Wow, that's amazing. They're feeding them. They're asking them about their lives. They're teaching them black history while they're eating. They're spreading the party message. They're really getting out there. That's so nice. Yeah, it sounds great. So great. That our friends at the FBI, the COINTELPRO, they didn't like this. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't. They're they tried terrible. to discredit it. They said, oh, this is just propaganda. They even would raid breakfast program locations while the kids were there eating. What the fuck? Again, if you find yourself interrupting children's breakfasts, you've entered mm-hmm. a very bad space. Yes. Wow. They will resort to any means necessary. To combat their enemies, I guess. I love how they're like, this is propaganda. It's like, they're just, they're being nice. Like, how's that propaganda? Maybe they're just nice. (laughs) Yeah, could be. (laughs) (laughs) The Black Panther Party went on to set up several other survival programs, including clothing distribution. Okay. Political classes. Transportation to and from prison for visitation. Cool. Ambulances. uh, Rehab treatments testing like medical clinic testing stuff and also just straight up free medical clinics overall that's awesome so real direct action mutual aid stuff yeah i mean how would they this is a stupid question maybe that's okay how would they do this is it just that like everyone in the organization would just like pitch in money or like they would be like i'm a lawyer i'll help you with this or i'm a doctor i'll help with this part you know 
Um, so as far as the direct services, I'm not quite sure. Okay, right. How do they get a doctor to the medical? They're not, hopefully, they're not volunteering to do it because they're not medically trained if, mm-hmm. unless, you know, unless they, they are. specifically are. But hopefully that's not just like, oh, I, I, I would <laughs> I gotcha. imagine they would get some community buy-in and be like, hey, can you put in some pro bono hours here? Okay. I do know that they did a lot of fundraising. Mm-hmm. And by this point, they had been co- becoming kind of a popular cause of celebrities and stuff. So like sometimes people would put on like charity events for them and stuff as well. Okay. So raising money that way. So yeah, there was a lot of fundraising too, just to like be able to directly provide this stuff. Okay. That's cool. So we're still in 1969 here in April. On April 4th, this is where we get back to Fred Hampton. His biggest achievement here, along with all the other stuff he was up to, uh, he was also a peacemaker. Okay. And he ends up brokering a non-aggression pact with Chicago's biggest street gangs. Wow. Gets them not to fight each other. <laughs> That's impressive. Says we got shit going on in the community. We can't have you guys fighting each other. Let's, let's not do that. That's awesome. And not only that, he builds a multicultural coalition an alliance between different groups that are kind of similar to the Panthers called the Rainbow Coalition. Okay, I think I've heard of this. Yeah, it's a cool name. It's created Very April cool. 4th, 1969. It's an alliance between the Panthers, a group called the Young Patriots Organization. All right, what's that? So the Young Patriots Organization is a very interesting group. They were an anti-racist, anti-capitalist group. I would not have guessed that based off the name. <laughs> oh, it's great, okay? Because the way that they do this, they're leftists. They're mostly made out of, made up of white Southerners okay. who had moved to Chicago. <laughs> okay, so like people like and us. So kind of an expat area, yeah, yeah in Chicago. And, but they were targeting young white migrants from the Appalachia region who still experience, you know, extreme poverty, extreme discrimination, poor whites, basically. Mm-hmm. And they were targeting these guys with like Confederate flag imagery. Whoa. And stuff like that. And like get saying, like, hey, you know, come listen to us. But then they would be like, we're against racism. We're against capitalism. <laughs> you know, and, and here's why those things are hurting you interesting they're just like it's a honeypot <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's so cool because people will be like oh the panthers morons they teamed up with these these white confederate people or whatever and they weren't that at all yeah that's people great. you know take such a shallow view of them because oh there was one confederate flag but that's not at all what they were doing that's so interesting i love that yeah it's crazy so there was like no white supremacy with these guys they were just that that was who they were reaching out to. Mm-hmm. They had like cowboy hats and bowls and stuff like that. <laughs> I too. love it. That's who they're going for. But they were a leftist. They were an anti-racist group. That's great. Yeah, that's the Young Patriots organization. There's also the Young Lords. Okay, <laughs> also strange, but tell me about it. And the Young Lords is still around. Okay. The Young Patriots are not. The Young Lords is still around. Uh, it was founded by Jose Chacha Jimenez. That's a great name. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a cool name. Latinx people know how to do a nickname. <laughs> yeah, for real. And it was centered around self-determination for Puerto Ricans, Latina, uh, Latinx people, and colonized people around the world. Sounds great. Yeah, so you can think of kind of this like intercommunalist sort of thing, kind of like the Panthers were, but centered around more Puerto Rican specifically, and then more generally Latinx people. Cool. So that was the initial nucleus of Mm -hmm. the group. Uh, You later add the 
Poor People's Coalition, the Students for a Democratic Society. Cool. Uh, the Poor People's Coalition, I think, was like kind of a local campaign sort of thing mm-hmm. that was going on there, like to advocate for poor people in the area. Yeah. Students for a Democratic Society. If you've heard of these guys, you may have heard of them as the SDS also. Yes, yes. They were kind of a campus-centered group and very stridently anti-war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mostly when I've heard of them. Uh, Anti-Vietnam War. That was their main thing. They were also just broadly speaking leftist as well. Okay. Uh, You also had the Brown Berets. Okay. Which I hadn't heard of. But the Brown Berets uh, were a Chicano organization. Ooh, I like that. Part of the Chicano movement. They are still around. But they're also, you know, you can think of them in the same branch. They were more focused on farmer, farm worker struggles, educational reform, anti-war activism. Cool. And who else? Who else? The American Indian Movement. All right. They were mainly focused on indigenous peoples, tribal Mm -hmm. rights and things like that. Also addressing systemic issues of poverty and police brutality against Native Americans. Yeah. And the Red Guard Party. Ooh, that's a cool name. The Red Guard Party is, uh, from what I could tell, seemingly similar to the Panthers for people of Chinese descent. Oh, okay. In like, uh, specifically in kind of the Bay Area, San Francisco sort of Chinatown area. Cool. They even, like, they even had a, like a 10 point thing. Oh, okay. The Panthers. Awesome. So yeah, like all these groups, you can tell that they should, they have sort of different interests in a way. For sure. They also, right? They also have so much in common. Oh, I love it. The idea here was that the groups in the alliance would work in concert. If there was an action, you know, protest, strike, whatever, they would go to support each other. Even if it was somebody else's main thing, they were going. That's so great. (laughs) They get thrown in jail, somebody does, they would pool together to help bail them out of jail. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Fucking solidarity. Yes, exactly. That was the thing. Solidarity between all these groups. It was Fred Hampton. He's, He's saying, you know, you don't, fight fire with fire you don't fight you fight fire with water you don't fight racism with racism you fight it with solidarity that's awesome he's the best he's cool (laughs) yeah he sounds amazing don't have heroes but he can come close (laughs) yeah he can be in the running the rainbow coalition is formed right Mm -hmm. how do you think that our friends at the COINTELPRO what what do you think that they thought about that they probably lost their shit they're like fuck now there's like 10 times as many of them yeah they were um they were scared they didn't like this. They recruit a 17-year-old William O'Neill uh, in exchange for like dropping felony charges and stuff oh. against him. They recruit him to infiltrate the Panthers as a counterintelligence operative. Oh, my God. He's going to later rise to become Hampton's bodyguard. Oh, no. And it's not going to end well. Shit. Gosh, that seems super illegal to be like, hey, we'll you know, give you your freedom if you go kill someone for us. Like, that doesn't seem legal. Uh, well, it's not. COINTELPRO <laughs> as a program was not legal. Um, it was oh, okay. a completely illegal like operation. And we would never have found out about it. And who knows how long it could have continued if not for some also illegal direct action. Mm, okay. Tell me about this. Uh, so this was in 1971 when the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI, this okay. really secretive group. Really, it took. It was decades later that they actually found the members of this group, and they were like, "Okay, enough time has passed. It's fine." But these guys, in 1971, they broke into an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. Okay. And it was crazy. It was a pretty small office, and it was after hours. You know, 
And there were just like a couple security guards there or whatever. And they chose this, you know, that the date, uh, March 24th, because there was a major boxing match going on. <laughs> okay. It was Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, the fight of the century. Yeah, yeah. And so they're like, the security guards, man, they're going to be glued to the radio <gasps> or TV or whatever. They're going to be watching that. This is great. I want to watch a movie of this. <laughs> this is a caper. And so they, yeah, they break into the office. There's a documentary film titled 1971. So okay. maybe we'll check that out. Yeah. They go in, they steal all these papers, and they expose it to the media. The wow. media, silent. <gasps> the only guys that publish it are the Washington Post. Wow. Everybody else is like, no, it's bad. What the fuck? Ongoing operations and all that, you know? Oh, national security bullshit. Yeah, but the only Ugh. reason we know about it is because these guys fucking stole from the government. That's broke amazing. in to the FBI office, stole it, and told everybody that, hey, the government's spying on you. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's insane. Yeah. All right. Back to Rainbow Coalition. Rainbow Coalition. Right. Yeah. COINTELPRO doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. They try to sow distrust between the Panthers. Right. They try to, between them and these other groups, they start trying to sow discord and be like, oh, Ooh. actually, though, the Panthers are like racist against white people. Okay. And they start publishing like fake cartoons and fake letters between people. They're just fucking gossiping. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to say, who's talking shit about you? You know? That's wow. what they're doing. Okay. Real mature. It doesn't really work. It doesn't break apart the coalition. Great. Eventually, they'll move on to worse tactics. How aware do you think, maybe you don't know this, but how aware do you think like the Black Panthers were of this F- FBI chicanery? Uh, pretty aware. Now, they were aware that the FBI were targeting them. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they were necessarily aware of the forgery aspect of stuff. Okay. That seems to be one that really brings them a lot of success. Yeah. The fact that they're aware that there are FBI informants doesn't help them too much because they don't know who they are and it actually kind of mm. hurts them. Yeah, because they don't know who to trust. Yeah, and that actually leads us to an event in 1969 in May. Okay. Where the party kind of takes some steps astray and ends up killing somebody. Okay. They seemingly don't should not have killed, or you could make the argument probably shouldn't have killed anyone in the first place. But yeah. It's because of COINTELPRO, because they're suspicious that, you know, they're super paranoid, who's an FBI informant, whatever. May 1969, they suspect one of their members in New York, Alex Rackley, of being a police informant. Was he a police informant? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think so. No. I don't know for sure. I guess it could have been. But what they did to him was not justified either way, because what they do is they torture him until he confesses. Oh, my God. Okay. And then they execute him. Oh, my God. And it's just like it's three, four people that do this. Three people, I think, that do this. But there's a big trial in New Haven, Connecticut, I believe. And it's a big deal because... So there's two guys that shoot him. Mm -hmm. They finally kill him, right? And one of these guys accuses Bobby Seale, one of the founders. They accuse him of giving the orders to do this. Okay. Now, he's the only... The other guy who shot him doesn't say that that happened. It's never proven and... Basically, questions remain now to this day about whether the guy who made that accusation, George Sams Jr., might have himself actually been the FBI informant they were worried about (gasps) or some sort of agent provocateur or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? But probably should have had a policy of like not executing people you think are FBI informants, but just like kicking them out of the party. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. It's very Sopranos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy's the rat. (laughs) It's fucking Jimmy. 
I knew it. They always have to say, I yeah. knew it. No, you didn't fucking. <laughs> uh, all right. It's in July, back to good things that they do. It's in July okay. <laughs> that the Panthers open up their first liberation school. That sounds great. I want to go to liberation school. It sounds awesome, man. July 1969, they set up their first liberation school. It starts out as kind of an informal after-school program that provides kind of like academic support and stuff and snacks to students. Sounds great. Also very important. Yeah. And I'll just cover the evolution of this here. It spans time, but this is all thematically in one thing. The first full-time liberation school opens later in January 1971 in Oakland. It's called the Intercommunal Youth Institute, the IYI. Okay. Uh, Students were separated by academic performance rather than age. That's cool. And it had grown to 50 students by 1973. It had a faculty-student ratio real small, 1 to 10. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The schools there, they provided traditional courses, you know, your math, science, whatever. Uh, But they also focused on class structure and institutional racism. I'd love that. (laughs) If you, like, went to school, but it was leftist-themed. Oh, Please, (laughs) please let me go. The overall goal was encouraging students to develop a revolutionary consciousness. That's great. You know, by 1974, they've grown into a larger facility. They've changed their name to the Oakland Community School. They eventually, down the road, it's in 1977, uh, receive an award from the state for having set the standard for the highest level of elementary education in the state. Wow, that's amazing. It's crazy, right? Eventually, they do close. It's in 1982 when the party itself goes under. Mm, okay. It's a pretty big deal that they start from just these community programs. Yeah. I mean, like, that's fulfilling such a huge need, not only, like, educationally, but, like, in a childcare sense. Like, that is a big gap mm-hmm. in childcare, especially, like, for your younger kids who get out really early. Like, if you have people working and if you have, like, yeah. single parents, that's a huge benefit. Yeah. That's, that's, that's true. There's a popular Netflix movie out now. I don't know if you've seen it, but The Trial of Chicago 7. I've heard of it. It's uh, it's by Aaron Sorkin. Oh, my my fave. It was a pretty good movie entertainment-wise and everything. Okay. Um, you know, generally liberal in its outlook I mean, he's terrible at race, so I'm super curious. <laughs> yeah, and it's not central to the movie, really. Okay. The Trial of the Chicago 7 was originally the Trial of Chicago 8. That's how mm. it starts out. Because Black Panther... Bobby Seale was included in this in this trial. Mm, okay. This was uh, overall the whole thing centers on the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Okay. Where riots broke out because it was a police riot. These guys were accused of the people on trial here were accused of crossing state lines to incite riots. <laughs> it's very um, specific. Yeah, but again it was it was the police who provoked this and oh, yeah. made this into a violent event. And busted people's heads in on national television. The trial began in September 24th, 1969. Bobby Seals, you know, indicted, put on trial with these guys. He gets there. He requests that his trial be postponed Mm -hmm. because he doesn't have an attorney present. These guys are all represented by this other attorney. And he was saying, my attorney, he's having surgery. Can we postpone this trial till he's out? The judge, Julius Hoffman, a real asshole, said no. Okay. And then Seal's like, okay, can I represent myself? The judge says, no. I thought you were allowed to do that. It's unconstitutional what he did. But yeah, but he, <laughs> he, did, he did it. Okay. Seal repeatedly is protesting this out loud in the courtroom. And on October 29th, the judge ordered Seal to be bound 
gagged and chained to a chair during the proceedings. Holy shit. This is in what year? In 1969. What the fuck, guys? The lawyer who was not his, the, the other guy's lawyer, like, he's still on the defense of the other mm-hmm. guys, you know. He said, you know, Your Honor, this is not a courtroom anymore. This is a medieval torture chamber or yeah, something Yeah, what like the that. fuck? Again, if you find yourself doing these things, take a look in the mirror. Yeah, so Seal was there. That liter- you know, this literally happens to him. He has to endure this for several days. Oh, my God. Eventually, they reveal that Seal had only gone to Chicago as a last-minute replacement for Eldridge Cleaver. Mm. Because Cleaver had jumped bail and stuff. Uh, so he was like the last minute, you know, he had been there in, on that weekend of the convention. He'd been there for four hours. <gasps> oh, my God. And then he gets fucking tortured. Yeah, not enough time to, like, do any conspiring or whatever. He probably just, like, got gas and breakfast or something. And when they find that out, Hoffman severs him from the case, I guess, gives mm. him a different trial, sentences him to four years in prison for contempt of court. Okay, what? One of the longest sentences that they'd ever done, but it's yeah. just he's mad that a black person has said this to him. Oh, my God, that's insane. It's overturned on appeal. Good. The higher court is just like, are you serious? <laughs> that's not what that's for. <laughs> yeah. But Bobby Seale has to go through that. Again, raises the profile of the Panthers. Shows, you know, just the lengths that people are willing to go yeah. to attack them. Even judges who were supposed to follow the law. Were the other people, were those Black Panthers? Or were they just like... No. Um, okay. There was Tom Hayden from the SDS. There's like different like student activists, not Black Panthers. Okay. On December 4th, 1969, we get to a real sad chapter of their history. Okay. Uh, the assassination of Fred Hampton. No. Uh, so by late 1969, the FBI, our good friends, mm. and the Chicago PD, mm. they were tired of Fred Hampton and all of his success in organizing the poor and the dispossessed of the city, right? Can't have that. They're done with it. They don't like it. So in November... Um, Fred Hampton's like in California with a party function. These two cops end up getting killed in a shootout with some Panthers. Okay. Who also lose one of their own. And the Chicago Tribune writes an editorial. And this is some really terrible stuff here. They write an editorial, an unsigned. So just this is what our newspaper thinks. Literally titled, quote, no quarter for wild beasts. Oh my God. In the... Opinion article, they urged the police to approach suspected Panther members, quote, ready to shoot. Holy shit. Yeah. That's insane. Tensions were clearly high. And yeah, they're just. Who is the wild beast in that? Yeah. Like, in that portrayal? Like, now, who's fucking inciting a riot? You didn't cross state lines, but geez. Again, again, your, your, your frame here is when you find yourself writing <laughs> headlines like. <laughs> Oh, unless uh, it's like a literal zoo breakout or something. <laughs> There's no need for that. The FBI gets their informant, O'Neill, mm-hmm. to give them a detailed floor plan of Hampton's apartment while the Chicago PD put together a 14-man heavily armed raid team with search warrants for illegal weapons. Uh, O'Neill said, oh, yeah, there's a disturbing amount of illegal weapons in there. So they get a search warrant for it. Was there? There are probably weapons. I don't know their legality or anything. I know that Hampton was unarmed when it goes down. Jeez. There was a guy with a shotgun. I know that. On December 3rd, Hampton taught a political education class at a local church. When he returns to his apartment with his 
Panther friends that were, that had been there too. They have dinner. O'Neill's mm-hmm. prepared them a dinner. He's also drugged Hampton's drink with Sika <gasps> Barbital. Okay. To sedate him during Shit. the impending raid. O'Neill leaves shortly thereafter. Hampton ends up falling asleep mid-sentence talking to his mother on the phone around 1.30 in the morning. Okay. At 4.45 a.m. December 4th, 1969, the cops storm the apartment. Mark Clark was sitting in the front room of the apartment. He had a shotgun in his lap. He shot and killed immediately. Okay. Uh, his gun goes off into the ceiling. This, this is the only shot fired by the Panthers during Jesus. the whole assassination. Yeah, and I'm sure they fucking took that to mean let's just shoot up the whole place. Well, they do. Hampton was sleeping on a mattress in his bedroom with his fiancée, Deborah Johnson, nine months pregnant. Oh, my God. The cops dragged her from the room while Hampton still lay unconscious, drugged. The cops fired, wounding Hampton in the shoulder. Here's a, an account from one of his fellow party members in the next room who heard the following exchange. That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He's barely alive. He'll make it. Then two shots ring out. A deliberative pause between each of them. Later, these will be found to be point-blank shots. Oh my god. Then they hear, he's good and dead now. Just straight up executed. He was 21 years old when they executed him. 21? Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yeah. The cops dragged Hampton's body into the doorway of the bedroom, left him there in a pool of blood, and started firing at the rest of the Panthers in the other bedroom, seriously wounding several of them. Before then, they uh, dragged them out into the street, beating them along the way. These Panthers there were charged with aggravated assault and the attempted murder of the officers. What the fuck? They were held on a $100,000 bail. The charges would later be dropped. They didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, During the course of the assassination, the cops fired at least 80 shots. 80. For how many people were in this fucking apartment? There were kind of a lot of people. There was one guy with a gun who died immediately, and everyone else was unarmed. Including a pregnant woman? Yes. Jesus. The Yeah, like I said, the, the police end up lying about the assassination altogether. They claim that they had been attacked, that they had defended themselves, and in their press release or their press conference thing, this is going to be enraging to hear, mm. but they praised the remarkable restraint the bravery and the professional discipline of the officers involved i imagine for not killing every last person in the apartment what the fuck yeah what the fuck i mean like straight up lying saying that like they were defending themselves like that's just (laughs) a lie even if you had wanted to like pretend this was in any way like legal. If someone actually had illegal weapons, you wouldn't just fucking, you know, Bust destroy everything, everybody. right? Like that's time to die, Robocop yeah, style. That's not how that works. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Insane. The county attorney, Cook County State's attorney, Edward Hanrahan, backed them up. He also lied to the press. He claimed that the Panther shot first and that they refused to cease firing even when asked. Considering they weren't firing in the first place, that was a pretty big lie. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Later, Hampton's family ends up winning a $1.85 million suit 
a wrongful death settlement from the city of Chicago. Jeez. I mean, too little too late, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine we fucking still had Fred Hampton? Like, that'd be amazing. Yeah, it would be. Took him too young. He just achieved so fucking much, and he was 21. Like, that's insane. And Chicago (laughs) had pacified the gangs. Yeah, that's amazing. Gotten people to work together. You know, and all these different groups seemingly fighting for their own interests now fighting together for all of their interests, you know, individually and all combined. A different trajectory. You know, the left would have had kind of a real shot with him. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that too. It's that fucking space meme, man. Like, that's where we would be. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for sure. Jeez. All right. The last section I have for you is called The Demise. Oh, I don't think I'm going to like this one. No. So we have the death of Fred Hampton in 1970. Cleaver's already, Eldridge Cleaver's already abroad. Mm -hmm. He kind of goes traveling through Asia, visiting communist countries there in North Vietnam, North Korea, China. He's got like a Panther delegation with him. They kind of form some closer ties um, and orient the party. More of this internationalist approach. It's in 19 August, 1970 that Newton's finally released, you know, that appeal finally Mm -hmm. happens and he comes back into the fold. And while Cleaver is abroad and Newton's back in play, COINTELPRO, Mm. Our friends, this is half about the Black Panthers, half about <laughs> COINTELPRO. Yeah. They start seeing some more fruits of their labor as they create a split. They engineer a split between Newton and Cleaver. Okay. And they use fake letters to convince Cleaver that Newton's doing all these terrible things. He's fucking up the party. The people really are looking to him for leadership convinces him to like be against Huey Newton. Okay. And so Newton is on like this, like this talk show or something. I wasn't able to find footage of this. I just saw this in like, that was citing a book, but Newton was on this talk show. Cleaver calls in from overseas. They've got like a satellite link or something. Spicy. Calls in and he's like, fuck you. You're doing all this like your reactionary stuff. You're like wrong. We should be doing this. Whatever. Criticizes him. Mm, okay. So Newton ends up expelling him from the party. Mm. Kicks him out. See you later. Eldridge Cleaver leaves, joins up with or forms, it's not quite sure, a group called the Black Liberation Army. Okay. Which seems like it was kind of already in existence as like the underground wing, the underground kind of military wing of the Panthers. Ah, I'm not okay. quite sure. I really couldn't get the get the inside scoop on it. Okay. But he leaves uh, the factions between the people who like Cleaver and the people who like Newton. They kind of go to war, mm. assassinating each other's members. I think four people oh. end up dying in that conflict. Shit. Okay. Our coalition's not looking so hot. Yeah. It's in September that Huey Newton ends up visiting China, his own kind of Panther delegation there. He's kind of greet. He's greeted heroically. Mm-hmm. Thousands of people are out there waving the little red book, Aww. displaying signs that say, we support the Black Panther Party down with U.S. imperialism. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> he ends up meeting with various ambassadors, with the prime minister. He comes back praising China as, quote, a free and liberated territory with a socialist government. Interesting. Yeah. So I thought in light of our own episode looking at China or answering that question about it anyway, Mm -hmm. 
might have to revisit it at some point. I know, yeah. I, I definitely <laughs> need to do a deeper dive in there. Between 1972 and 1973, the party does something pretty dumb. Okay. All the chapters that it's got all over the nation, they start shutting those down. Okay, why do they do that? And say, hey, come on back. Come on back to Oakland. You got to come back to Oakland. We're putting all our resources in here to take over Oakland city government. Okay. They end up winning a few local government commission seats and stuff, but they had run Bobby seal for mayor and they failed. Okay. They didn't get him elected as mayor. And Newton after this, he's pissed and he's like, Bobby, you had this terrible idea. Kicks him out. Kicks out a lot of people. <laughs> okay. And just kind of basically does a, a soft purge, you know, just kicking people out of the yeah. party. That leads to pretty, you know, that's, that's kind of disastrous for them to compile the problems. Newton gets into more, trouble with the law when in august of 1974 he's accused of murdering someone murdering a 17 year old sex worker oh. uh, named kathleen smith there's not a certainty on this and he doesn't get convicted okay i don't know myself but it does look to me and i won't accuse him of it formally but if i were to lean one way or the other it does look more like he is likely to have done that okay that sucks. He was also accused of pistol whipping his tailor. Whoa. Uh, Preston Callens. Apparently in both situations, he had gotten into altercations with them because they called him baby. <laughs> he uh, hates which being was a called nickname. baby. Yeah. Apparently a nickname he hated from childhood or something. Okay. I don't know if the source was right on that necessarily, but that's what I read. <laughs> Huey Newton ends up fleeing with his girlfriend to Cuba for three years to avoid prosecution. Wow. So not good. Uh, people are getting assassinated. People have, you've shut down chapters all over the country. You have kicked out more party members. One of your party members has fled the country. It's looking dire. In 1974, uh, since he flees, Elaine Brown is put in charge of the party. Okay. And Elaine Brown's an interesting figure. She increases the influence of women in the Panther organization appoints women to prominent leadership positions and gets more involved in kind of electoral campaigns and community activism. Okay. And I think this kind of leads us into an interesting subject with the Panthers that we want to spend a little more time on because the trajectory here, Elaine Brown, she's putting, you know, she's there for a while, mm -hmm. but when Newton does come back, there's an incident where Regina Davis, who's an administrator at one of the liberation schools, reprimands a coworker for not doing one of their assignments and gets beaten. Whoa. Gets her jaw broken by, by male Panther members there. And Newton just kind of sides with them or condones it. What the fuck? I saw one account that said he ordered it. I saw most accounts saying that he was like, okay, or sympathized with it or something. So yeah. that's when Elaine Brown left the party okay. because that was bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And this, I think, is a good way to kind of introduce kind of an important issue that kind of runs throughout their history is the issue of gender. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about that. I was actually writing that on my notes to ask. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> In the earliest days of the party, the uh, they definitely espoused traditional gender roles. Okay. Focused on kind of black masculinity. Mm -hmm. They start out kind of as an all-male party. Yeah, yeah. Obviously so, given what you're going out there and telling people, right? But women are interested in joining. Yeah. You know, the 10 points doesn't say anything about being only for men. Um, and it, they're good points. Yeah. So that kind of has to evolve over time. But in the kind of home base, the Oakland chapter, uh, this problem is, is 
like worse, it seems like, than other places. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the local leadership there is is the is at issue here mm-hmm. uh, because they have more cases of sexual harassment, gender conflict. Um, that's more commonplace there. Okay. Apparently, one account I saw said that when some party members from Oakland visited their New York chapter, the women there fended them off at gunpoint due to their chauvinistic attitudes. I mean, the chauvinistic attitudes being, quote, I don't know if that's like a euphemism and saying they tried to do something or what, but yeah. they were not having it. Oh, man. They apparently were kind of a locus of problematic attitudes. Interesting. But I don't think this was universal throughout the party. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, though. Like, I mean, those chapters are naturally going to have some different dynamics. And if if the mm-hmm. platform itself wasn't espousing like sexism, then that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. They do accept women. It's Joan Tarika Lewis, who is the first woman to join the party in 1967. They contribute over 40 images to the party paper, The Black Panther, mm-hmm. as a graphic artist between cool. 1967 and 1969. Yeah. It's the the newspaper actually ends up being kind of a bastion of female representation in the party. I think it's from 1968 to 82. All of its head editors are women. Cool. They also have a lot of other prominent party members. Kathleen Cleaver, who is Eldridge Cleaver's wife. Mm, okay. Uh, Erica Huggins, Angela Davis. Yeah. These are all prominent Black Panther Party members. She was also on my notes to ask about. About Angela. Yeah, she was yeah. A, she was a member. I don't. It doesn't seem as though she had held like leadership positions. I wasn't able to really see too much in in terms of that. Yeah, she was an affiliate of the Los Angeles chapter. Okay. But but the group, like we said, kind of evolved on the issue of gender. Realized it needed to be incorporated mm-hmm. into a broader critique of what they were fighting. By 1969, the paper had officially mandated the equal treatment of male and female party members. Nice. Uh, That same year, Fred Hampton, RIP, conducted a meeting condemning sexism. Good. uh, After which the party considered sexism to be counter-revolutionary. Okay. There was still kind of a a reliance on gender roles. Mm -hmm. From what I've read, like in the the party paper and stuff, it seems like they, while they were saying like men and women are equal, neither is above the other, they kind of still relied on maybe having different roles. Yeah. And still kind of fell into that. Yeah, that's that can be kind of common, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like they would portray kind of women as, you know, active defenders, armed, you know, military people in the same way, you know, but defenders of home, family, community kind of put it in that. More domestic. Yeah. So I don't know. That's, I guess we can't expect them to be going by kind of our, our views or our times views of. Yeah. Women do make advances in the party nationwide. Oakland exception, maybe. Mm-hmm. They at times make up two thirds of the party membership. That's a lot. Especially when the COINTELPRO raids are going and they're Shit. jailing people, you know. Women held leadership positions and they also called attention to and worked to change the sexism that was in the party. Cool. Right. So they were always kind of like fighting that fight. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the 70s that the party officially supports women's reproductive rights. Nice. They establish on-site child care facilities in multiple U.S. chapters locations. Very good. I couldn't find more information on this, but they also condemned uh, and opposed sex work. Interesting. I don't know if it was, because I mean, I, I don't know if it was like the, the Marxist broader critique of saying, it's work, it's bad, don't mm-hmm. do work. Or if it was specifically saying, 
it's bad for them to do it, or if it was at least saying it's bad for people to patronize, you know, or, or to exploit yeah. people in that way. Mm, interesting. Uh, I didn't see more detail on it. Okay. Potential bad. Potential bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Ultimately, I guess, where, where are you thinking about that in terms of like the gender, the gender issue? I think they progressed. I think it makes sense. I think given the like environment they were in and like mm-hmm. just the time period, like, yeah, we can't expect them to be a hundred percent like gender neutral or, you know, anti-sexist. Yeah. So I, I think they were doing okay for the most part. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I was kind of surprised with the rainbow Co- coalition. Like there wasn't a women's group in there and there wasn't like the, like the gay liberation front in there, you know, like they definitely, mm-hmm had more of a focus on race, which I think is good. You know, like we definitely, yeah. that's important. You know, we need to be anti-racist. But yeah, I, th- I think in the idea of solidarity, like I would have been interested in seeing other groups be part of that too. In late August, 1970, Huey Newton, upon release from prison, wrote an open letter in the Black Panther about an alliance between the homosexual movements, women's liberation, and the Black Panther Party. There we go. I knew it happened eventually. <laughs> I was like, I read about this. What? Called upon the Black Panther Party to include women's and gay liberation in their revolutionary plan, building a coalition that stands united against the racist, patriarchal, capitalist state. Fuck yeah. Sounds good to me. He does kind of problematically say, I have hangups about, I have hangups myself about male homosexuality, but his message is overall good. Okay. He can have his personal things, I guess. Yeah, I guess. What is it? Poe Buddy's Nerfect? Poe Buddy's Nerfect. <laughs> So that was Lane Brown in power for a bit until things get bad enough that she leaves. In 1977, like we said, Newton had come back from exile. He uh, stood trial for the assault and the murder. Mm -hmm. Party members apparently tried to assassinate witnesses in the trial. Newton denied knowledge, all this stuff. He he ends up getting convicted on a gun charge, but the other stuff gets tossed out of mistrials and stuff. I mean, everything's sliding down. By 1980, membership has fallen to 27 people. Whoa. Okay. Closed all those branches. All they had is Oakland. If Oakland's fallen apart too, then it's. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. I wish they hadn't closed all those branches. Newton, by this point, has begun to succumb to drug addiction. Oh. The um, Panther School closes due to a scandal wherein Newton was accused of embezzling funds in 1982. Jeez. Uh, allegedly do pay for his drug addiction. It's in 1989 after the party has dissolved in, in 1982. Uh, it's in 1989 that Huey Newton is murdered. How, how is he murdered or who? Uh, he's killed in, he's shot. He's killed by a member of the black gorilla family. There's different accounts I've seen that he may have been extorting them to obtain drugs. Mm. I've also seen that the person who shot him was doing so to move up in the ranks of their family to get a, like, like a franchise of, to get his own crew, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that sucks. That's, uh, that's when he dies. But 1982 is when the party officially ends. Man, that sucks. That's the history of the Black Panther Party. That's what they were about. What sort of questions do you want to round us out with? I mean, we kind of covered them. I I did have questions about, because I had read about them in some way, like endorsing the queer movement. So I was curious about that. Mm -hmm. And then the sexism question, because I think I had heard that kind of accusation before. 
I don't know. I mean, this is less of a question, more of a <laughs> lamentation, but like, I wish they were still around. I wish fucking all these people were still around. I wish Fred Hampton were still around. Like, it just sucks. And like, I don't know. I'm kind of annoyed. <laughs> I'm annoyed that the new Black Panther Party is apparently anti-Semitic because like, man, I, I would totally support them if they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. They're not a good, they're not a good group, but yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. Black Panther Party was not perfect. They didn't do everything right, but they had a good, I don't know. I think they had a good approach, especially the, once they had developed into this intercommunal mm-hmm. idea, right? And they have this solidarity. Yeah. I love the like anti-imperialist message, the idea mm. of like, nations don't fucking matter anymore. Like I'm I'm on the last bit of open veins, so that very much hit hard with me. Just like, yeah, no, we still have fucking colonies. Like if not literally yeah. with, with Economic. economics. Like we mm-hmm. fucking dangle aid in front of people and make them buy our expensive shit and sell us cheap shit. It's horrible. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I'm sure there are listeners, maybe you can direct us toward some organizations that kind of reflect what the Black Panthers might be like you know, had they carried on, right? This sort of same spirit. Yeah. Of intercommunalism. I think that like, you know, mutual aid groups try to definitely try to emulate that sort of looking out for one's community, right? Mm-hmm. Antifa is not, you know, really an organization necessarily. It's just a patchwork group. <laughs> <laughs> as much as people would like to believe. <laughs> you know, you can see, I don't know, a spirit of like, we're not going to back down maybe from them, but they're not, a real thing they're just kind of different groups so i don't know yeah i would i would love to know about organizations like that i mean i do follow black socialists on twitter they're a really great account and they i think i've learned a lot about the black panthers mm-hmm. through them like I, I think that's where i learned about the school breakfast program stuff like that so give them a follow i really love the whole solidarity message and i really appreciated like i said the anti-imperialism and i just think it's just a fucking shame (laughs) and it's an outrage that like our own fucking government Mm -hmm. in the name of national security which you know a lot of people would fucking defend oh yeah they would they had guns yeah even though it's like this the absolute hypocrisy of gun logic in this country is insane yeah they did crimes or something well then put them on trial for them maybe and don't yeah don't just execute them Well, okay, that's something, though, to think about is if we did have an incarnation of the Black Panther Party in our modern world, we would it would be met with the modern incarnation of COINTELPRO. Yep. You know, um, when Fred Hampton became a big enough threat, he became no longer a threat. I mean, it still happens. Like, a lot of Black Lives Matter movement people, like, got mysteriously killed so in ferguson yeah lots of them were dying in burned cars yeah having been shot yeah it's not fucking out of the question i don't know what would we do we can't just it's a question for an entire other episode i think (laughs) maybe but what does the left do to move beyond isn't it a shame that we can't have a revolutionary you know intercommunalist a revolutionary communist organization dedicated to actually overthrowing capitalism and you know all the stuff we want to do isn't it a shame we can't do that in an organized way without you know the fbi overthrowing us killing us how do we move beyond that? i have no idea you have to be reached like a critical mass right we're like you can't murder everyone and get away with it 
Yeah. I don't know. But it seems like they're totally willing to murder everyone and get away with it. Like we saw fucking cop cars run over crowds of people. So. Well, yeah, because it's you ultimately you don't have to run over that many people. Yeah. You just have to run over a lot of the people who are there, which aren't that many people mm-hmm. in comparison. And just scare the shit out of everyone. So many people might, they might be like, oh, isn't that horrible? But they're also not going to go out there and take to the streets and to oppose it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll make excuses for them. I don't know. Well, now I'm sad. <laughs> there were lessons to be drawn, mm-hmm. I think, you know, in, in terms of doing mutual aid, serving your community in a direct way that's not, you know, you don't want to go down this liberal idea of like, oh, let's keep it separate from politics. Because what the Panthers acknowledged, I think, really well was that what they were doing was inherently political. Yeah. Distributing free food was a political act. Yeah. You can't be like these people who are like, oh, that's, you know, thankfully we were able to put politics aside and (laughs) do this thing. Well, what's interesting about that, I was thinking whenever we were talking about like the food programs and stuff, what was it called? The survival programs? Mm Mm-hmm. I was kind of drawing a parallel with like church charities where they do similar things. Well, they'll like have potlucks and stuff like that, but they're definitely also trying to indoctrinate you. (laughs) So like, yeah, that's, that's really smart. And like, it's a good idea to do that. Cause like the fucking other side's doing that too. Like, yeah. Yeah, for sure. What you're doing is you, I guess you have the opportunity to advance that, but just by saying we need to do this right. Okay. So their inherent political message is, the government is not doing a good job of giving you what you need. Mm-hmm. We, the churches, will do that because we can do a good job of that. Private charity is a good way to handle this. Exactly. Right? Their message is let let us rich people take care of you. Right, yeah. And then the Panthers are saying the government, same. that part's the same. Mm-hmm. The government's not doing its job, but we, the community, we, the people, are going to be doing this for ourselves mm-hmm. you know, it should be our job it should be our local community's responsibility to help ourselves yeah to help each other yeah yeah i think that's really effective i don't understand how to get involved in mutual aid besides throwing money at it because i'm a dummy <laughs> so i i super admire those organizations that make that a core part because i think Today, it feels like it's really easy just to either throw money at something or just post about something, all these things. Or even like when we saw that kind of, they dipped their toe into electoralism there, like like in the later mm-hmm. part where they're like, let's try to get this guy elected mayor. And it's like, that's fine, but like the base should be providing materially for people because if you can prove that that's a possibility, that that is an alternative, then then you're winning. Like that's the goal. Yeah. We're both not great activists in terms of activi- no. actually doing activist shit. No. We just yell about it on the internet. So, yeah, that's our sad uh, contribution. <laughs> <laughs> there are ways. I mean, and if you contact mutual aid organizations, you can actually, you know, sign up to volunteer in different ways and, and, and be a real, you know, be a real activist mm-hmm. in that sense. It's not a closed door. Yeah. It's just how can you combine that with... The 10-point program. I mean, mm-hmm. how can you combine that with a revolutionary approach? Yeah. Just go to all the food banks and start leaving pamphlets of Marx around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what you've got you've to figure out is how to... The, the pairing of the two is the real frightful thing. The pairing of a liberationist ideology, you know, some, some, something revolutionary mm-hmm. that's, that 
wants to overthrow things, wants to radically change things with showing people their power in terms of direct aid like that, Mm -hmm. you know, and the willingness not to back down, to not be afraid to defend yourself. Yeah. I love that they taught classes too. Like, I think that's really important. And I'm willing to bet those classes, like based on the 10 point thing, I bet that was like super accessible and like not just fucking bogged down in theory. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 Fred Hampton, I've seen videos of him giving talks like this and they're just, they flow. They're easy to understand. I love it. It just, it makes intuitive sense. It's not a lot of jargon. It's Marx, but modern times, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think that's going to be an important component too, of just like actually reaching people where they are and just Mm -hmm. explaining it in an easy way. Because I just... I don't know. So much of modern leftism is is just bullshit. It's just go read theory. Yeah, go read theory. Let's argue about the best way to do this. Electoralism versus other shit. And it's just like, can we just fucking do something, please? I would love it <laughs> if we actually could accomplish yeah. anything. <laughs> but we got to get into all our perfectly little divided factions and all that. What if we don't? What if we just say, let's go help people? <laughs> yeah, and like you know, we saw in their lesson that there is still a lot of factional infighting possible Mm -hmm. you know that's one of the mistakes that they made but it is something we would have to work through whatever new organization would come to be they at least got off the runway you know (laughs) like they devolved into that we haven't even gotten past that that's our first step is being factional that's true that's fine whatever (laughs) it's just it's frustrating right now just seeing so much attention on like fucking centrist races and bullshit that i'm just like this isn't helping anyone like i just don't care yeah we're retracting all our resources to win the mayoralcy or whatever you call Mm -hmm. it mayoralty (laughs) 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 to win the mayor's you know we're we're doing that but on in our times basically yeah yeah okay now let's do electoral i don't know yeah not my thing i mean i i get i get the logic of it because I think some of it is we're we're raised in a culture that thinks that that is the solution. Like, I mean, if our dad is listening, <laughs> he every time we complain about politics or something, he'll be like, well, you should run for office. And I'm like, I'm, first off, I don't have a bajillion dollars. Secondly, what is that going to do? Like, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to change it from the inside. And, you know, like, I'm not going to be able to do everything I want to do. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's a practical solution. It could have some change, but not without a mass base of support. Yeah, that's the thing. I think that's one of the big lessons from the Panthers is they were able to develop this mass base of support. Yeah. You know. And that was because they had those mutual aid programs. Mm-hmm. Because of that mass line. Because of figuring out what the people wanted and being in touch with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's wrap up. Thank you for, for going over all that. Yeah. Thanks for being a great student. You had excellent questions. Hopefully we tackled all of the things in your want to know oh yeah i forgot my column i should have i should have like posted that or something or kept it so i could post it (laughs) (laughs) yeah no thanks for being a great student no problem that was quite a lot of research (laughs) i'm looking forward to next week when i think you're going to be doing a kind of class presentation here right yeah i'm doing a student research project i've got my trifold poster and my that wavy border stuff (laughs) you know Ooh, good 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 that's how you know you really made it yeah exactly (laughs) But this is actually based off of a listener email we got uh, from a listener in India. And they told us about the state of Kerala, which is at the southern tip of India, kind of the southwest 
And yeah, he was telling us about like how they have a big history of communism there. And I looked into it and it's cool as fuck. So I'm excited. Awesome. That sounds cool. I can't wait to learn about that. Yeah, it's it's been a fun investigation. In the meantime, you can tide yourself over by following us online. We are on Instagram at Teach Me Communism, Twitter at Teach Communism. If you want to send us an email and suggest an episode topic or ask a question, feel free to do that. We are teachmecommunism at gmail.com. We are on YouTube. If you prefer to listen to podcasts that way, just give us a search there. And we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash teachmecommunism. We will be donating all of that money at the end of the year to a local mutual aid fund. So we will we will throw money at this problem until it gets better. <laughs> money to the people. For $5 a month, you can get access to our notes. I hear this this episode's notes has a lot of links and stuff. So that's probably going to be good. Yes, deluxe mode. Ooh, okay. Deluxe mode notes here. Delicious. Yeah. I think I'm hungry. That's why I said delicious. <laughs> I need to eat food. <laughs> anyway, you can get access to that just for $5 a month. Real easy. So do that. Yeah. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love those. Love reviews. Rate and review. Do both. Don't just don't be lazy. Just hit the star. Just just type some words. Although if you do, I mean, it's like it's okay. I mean, yeah, you do both. <laughs> yeah. To Leon. Just do both too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for being a great student. Thanks for teaching me. That was a lot, dude. Thanks for all that research. That sounded <laughs> that sounded difficult to do. It was fun as hell, but yeah, it was a lot. Okay, good. I'm <laughs> glad you're into this because this podcast would not work. If it was me every week, I'd be like, Ugh. I have to do this. No, this was super cool. I only have enough nerdy energy for like one episode a month of me researching. <laughs> I have a terrible process of it, but it works for me. It's like I just absorb, absorb. I don't do like any like writing down of anything. I'm just like. How many tabs do you think you had open at one point? Well, this was actually the reason that I put the links in because I had so many tabs <laughs> I had to like. I just have an easy way to refer back to them. You reach like tab capacity. Even now I've got like 15 on this oh one God. thing over here. I can't. And that's pretty narrowed down. All right, listeners, you can uh, catch us next week on another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Stay safe, comrades. Bye.